0: Welcome to Double Deal, a series about organized crime in 20th century Boston, the stories of our central character, Richard Tchaikovsky, the criminals, the crimes, and the law enforcement officers who rule the streets. Nina and I will be your guides through the darkest streets of Boston, telling you the true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies. Hi everyone, if you've been listening to us over the last few weeks, you'll remember Fats Bucelli, Wimpy Bennett, and the moldy loot found in a cooler. Today we'll be talking about Fats and Wimpy's life of crime up until their arrest of June 1956, the case itself, and what happened to Fats after his release. Nina, tell us a little bit about Fats.
1: John Bucelli was born in Quincy on September 9th, 1918. It was a pain in the neck, but I finally found his birth certificate. His mother, Maria, seems to have died in childbirth or shortly thereafter, because in the 1920 census, one-year-old John is living with his widowed father, Isidore, and his older sister, who was just coming up on her third birthday. In February of 1923, Isidore remarried a woman named Domenica. She had a young son of her own. They went on to have two daughters together.
0: But then, according to FBI reports, he was born on September 9, 1913.
1: Well, you can't trust the feds, but I did find a draft card on him, and that one has his birthday listed as September 9th, 1912. It's definitely him. He was married in 1938, and his wife is listed as his contact person. He says he's, he was working for the WPA, so maybe the feds were going off of that information.
0: Okay, and what about his criminal career?
1: Well, he's allegedly locked up in Charles Street Jail at the same time as Raymond Patriarca in 1938. The story goes that they became acquaintances there, but they didn't become linked to one another in the Mafia until about 1950. In 1940, he was believed to have robbed the 500 Voters Club in Roxbury. He was indicted on six counts of armed robbery in that case, but he seemed to have been wandering around in the Northeast unnoticed. In January of 1947, he was arrested, along with James Puccini, for running a dice game in
0: Bidden, Maine. Why do we always have wise guys in Maine?
1: It makes no sense to me, but like you always say, all roads lead to Maine. Mm Mm-hmm. Maine didn't know about the indictments, though, so they released him. And when the prosecutors in the Brinks case were trying to beat the clock on the federal statute of limitations, they convened a grand jury, and Fats testified.
0: How do you have a man with an open indictment testify and then you let him go?
1: Look, nothing in the Brinks story makes any sense. Don't get me started. So Fats was picked up again in April of 54, along with Philip J. Sanders of Queens, New York. They conned a shopkeeper out of $30,000 in a horse betting scheme. Fats was arrested while the shopkeeper
0: was handing him $3,600. This time, the New York City police held him without bail until the Boston Police Department could question him. But once he was back in Boston, he was free to roam the streets again. According to the 302s from the wiretap at Raymond's office, Fats was a lieutenant under him and was controlling illegal horse race betting, loan sharking, and bar boot games in the Boston area. Supposedly, Raymond would come to Boston in those days to collect his cut. Do you buy that Fats had that much power? I think it's exaggerated. I do believe that he had that much pull on narcotics though, particularly heroin. He was later convicted in April of 1958, along with others from New York in a $20 million drug trafficking ring. Think about that much money
1: back in 1958. It's insane. Nuts. Nuts. So we'll get back
0: into Fats a little bit later. Do you want to start talking about the Moldy loot? Before we get into the Moldy loot, let's give a little bit of a background on Wimpy. We will only be covering Wimpy up to the Moldy loot arrest. There's so much to Wimpy's story that we'll be covering later in the season. Nina, what do you have about Wimpy?
1: Edward Albert Bennett was born on January 1st, 1919 to William F. and Flora Bennett in Boston. He was the youngest of eight kids. By 1940, he was living in the South End and running Pat's Smoke Shop on Washington Street. He enlisted in the Army on December 17th, 1941. On July 29, 1942, Wimpy married Francis Veresco in Michigan.
0: You know we're both related to Wimpy.
1: Distant cousins. But you're the lucky
0: winner of the family tree competition this time. I guess we should explain that we're both genealogy junkies and we have some geeky competition going to see which one of us is more closely related to random people. This is one that I was not hoping to win.
1: Well, better you than me. But Wimpy was also a direct descendant of William Brewster.
0: Think about that Mayflower crowd. He should have been in the social register and not in the can.
1: Well, neither of us can lay claim to that ancestor yet. But why was he called Wimpy?
0: Back in those days, White Castle was a popular burger joint in Boston. Popeye was a popular cartoon, and one of the characters was named Wellington Wimpy, who would say, I will gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. Wimpy ate those damn steam onion riddled burgers every single day, hence the nickname Wimpy. Well, I did a little digging because I wasn't familiar with the comic. Wellington
1: Wimpy was described as, quote, a soft-spoken romantic, intelligent and educated, a lazy coward, a miser, and a glutton. He's also a scam artist and also a tramp, but pretends to have (laughs) high social status. Besides mooching hamburgers, he also picks up discarded
0: cigars. How apropos. All right. Tell us about Wimpy's war service. So
1: Wimpy was a private in the Air Corps and was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for his service. After he was discharged, he returned to Boston. How exactly Wimpy found himself entrenched in the Boston crime scene and eventually aligned with the McLaughlin brothers is unclear. But his older brothers were also
0: involved in the rackets. I do know about the boosting, though. I remember overhearing stories about Wimpy and his booster pants. I was little, and I tried to imagine what that outfit had to look like, this kind of crazy combo of either oversized overalls or pants with some sort of bungee cord thing tied around his waist so he could expand it in order to tuck in all his little stolen goodies. I can imagine it.
1: So you'll recall from episode three that Wimpy was held in contempt for refusing to testify at the Brinks' grand jury in December of 52. He was eventually released, though. He was in Charles Street Jail in 1949, along with Fats, but I couldn't find what the case was or if they were co-defendants.
0: Wimpy and Fats shared an office at 617 Tremont Street in Boston. The name of the company was B&P Construction. Wimpy originally owned the building, but sold it to John Hindio. We'll get into Hindio's story shortly. The office was remodeled the month before. Two events led up to the search, the first being the arrest of Jordan Perry. Oh, this is another one of those
1: stories that makes me crazy. Jordan Perry and his many aliases. Robert Agara, George Gregorio, Alan Gregory, Francis F. Mirny, Thomas Ballou, and David Zalafsky, just to name a few. Back in 1953, Perry was picked up for passing bad checks in Toledo. He was sent to Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. Stanley Gutiérrez was locked up there at the same time. Perry was paroled in July of 55, but a warrant had been issued for his arrest again in January of 56 because he was a suspect in a $7,500 payroll holdup. The other odd thing about the story is that a man named Thomas Ballou was picked up in May of 56 for harboring Richardson and Fulherity. The two men were holed up in a Dorchester apartment trying to avoid the Brinks trial. That story is coming up in a few weeks.
0: On June 3rd, 1956, Perry was picked up in Baltimore when he passed a sticky, suspicious-looking $10 bill. The owner of the arcade called the police who showed up to find Perry still there. After searching Perry and his hotel room, the Baltimore Police Department found $4,635, and the money was identified by the serial numbers to be from the Brinks heist. Perry told the police that he found the money in the foundation of a house he was repairing in South Boston.
1: But he soon changed his story and told the authorities that Fats and Wimpy gave him the money and told him to go spend it. During questioning, Perry told the feds that he was in business with Fats and Wimpy. He stated that on the evening of June 1st, Fats asked him to rip a panel from a section of the wall in the office, and when the panel was removed, Fats reached in and removed the cover from a metal container. Inside this were packages of bills which had been wrapped in plastic and newspapers. Fats told Perry each package contained $5,000. This is good money, Fats said, but you can't pass it around here in Boston.
0: Perry claimed that Fats told him the money was from a swindle and offered to pay him $5,000 if he could pass out $30,000 of the bills. He told the FBI that he accepted Fats's offer, took $1,000 up front, and saw another six packages being placed in Wimpy's briefcase. On June 2nd, he left Massachusetts with $4,750 of these bills and began spending the money. But before
1: Perry went on his spending spree, he claimed that he and Wimpy left the Tremont Street office and headed back to Wimpy's house in Weymouth. He said he had known Wimpy for nine years and met him when he rented an apartment from him at 617 Tremont Street. They counted the money at Wimpy's house, but out of the $30,000, only $4,750 wasn't destroyed by mold. Wimpy put the moldy money back in his bag and drove Perry back to
0: Boston. The next morning, Perry hopped a train to New York. He got off at Grand Central Station, took a taxi cab to LaGuardia Airport, but there were no flights to Philadelphia. So he took another cab to the Newark Airport. There he got a flight to Philly and a taxi from the airport in Philly to the Broadway Hotel. The next day, he went to the rail station in Philly and took a train to Baltimore. First, he took a cab to the YMCA, but they had no rooms. So then he went to the Emerson Hotel and checked in
1: planes, trains, and automobiles, and violating your parole. Does that make
0: any sense to you? The entire story makes no sense. I could see if he told Perry to go buy gold or something that could be sold to recoup some of that money. But what the hell can you hawk from an arcade? What was the point? They would have been better off burning it. Why take that risk?
1: Exactly. What would Fats and Wimpy benefit
0: from that? And how was it that the money
1: Perry had in his possession was normal, but all the money they found in the wall was rotted and covered in mold, sand, and
0: bugs? I have no clue, but this information came from the initial questioning of Perry by special agents McNamara, O'Brien, Martin, and the Boston Police Department Captain Wilson.
1: So the following day on June 4th, a CI, who we only know as T1, informed Special Agent Weaver that he could find some of the money from the Brinks heist at 617 Tremont Street. A search warrant was issued by Judge Elijah Adlow. Warrants were also issued to search a pool room owned by Wimpy's brother Walter, Wimpy's Weymouth residence, and Fats' Brookline apartment. Special Agents Rico and Brick questioned Wimpy and remained with him until Detective Egan of the BPD arrived with a search warrant.
0: Special Agent Keough, while being observed by Rico, Brick, and Hargit, removed a four-foot by eight-foot wall panel in Bucelli's office and found a cooler containing $57,732. All of the money had been wrapped in newspapers published in Boston between December 4th, 1955 and February 21st, 1956. The other searches were a flop. Wimpy was arrested on the spot. Wimpy was brought to the DA's office and questioned by Special Agents Ferroli. Larkin, and Kehoe. He denied any knowledge of the money found on Perry.
1: In the meantime, Fats was under surveillance by Special Agents Boland, Giard, and Kane. While he was dropping off one of his sons at 16 Tramont Street, BPD Detective Thomas Barry approached him and asked him to come with him. Special Agents Giard and Kane accompanied them to the DA's office. Bucelli was questioned by Special Agents Larkin, Frizzoli, and Kehoe. During the interview, he admitted to knowing Anthony Pino because they were in jail together, but denied knowing anything about the money found in the office.
0: They were all indicted the following day for accessory, receiving, and possession of stolen property. Fats and Wimpy were held on $100,000 double surety. Perry was held without bail. Yeah, well, probably because he was in violation of his parole. Hello. (laughs) Hello.
1: So the feds found the carpenter who remodeled the office. The carpenter's records show that he, re, that he remodeled the offices in April of 56 per Fats' specifications. The conclusion was that the moldy loot could not have been hidden behind the wall panel prior to April.
0: On June 5th, the grand jury returned a 22-count indictment containing 66 charges against Fats and Wimpy. The same day, Special Agent Kehoe and Boston Police Detective Cornelius Fitzpatrick interviewed John Hindio, who purchased the building from Wimpy on November 9th, 1955.
1: Hindio told them that on February 11th, 1956, he leased the basement offices to Bocelli for $100 a month. Shortly after that, Fats approached Hindio and told him he wanted to remodel the offices and asked him if he knew someone. Hindio recommended someone named Jerry, who gave Fats an estimate of $90 for the labor. Fats told Hindio what he wanted, and Hindio procured the materials. The materials were received on March 29th, and the work was completed on April 4th. Bucelli paid $90 for the labor and another $96.46 for the materials, all in cash.
0: As for Hindu himself, there isn't much out there about him except for the property records and an article from 1977 about his grocery store closing in the South End. Big John, as he was called, was heading back home to St. Clair, Pennsylvania.
1: That was another strange situation. Neither of us could find a birth record, a census, a birth certificate, or a death certificate. In the FBI report, his birth date was listed as March 7, 1908. But it's like he didn't exist before coming to Boston, supposedly in 1944, and he doesn't exist after. And there's nobody else in the entire United States before or since with his last name. Also, he was listed as as operating a toy store out of the 617 Tremont Street location, but Perry said the toys belonged to Fats. I personally think it was a deep cover. Which government agency he was working for is probably something else we'll never know.
0: No shortages of mysteries in this story. The only records of him are the residence listings from Boston. In 1962, 63, and 64, a woman showed up at his Dedham Street address. She was listed as Catherine Hindio, widow of Samuel. Then poof, she was gone. There are no other records. Let me get back to the carpenter. Gerald Lavoy was interviewed on June 6th, and his statement lined up with Hindio's. Lavoy did state that he thought Bennett had nothing to do with the office or the remodel work. Wimpy was there several times while he was working, but the only conversation was Lavoy asking him what he thought of the work and Wimpy's response of, okay. Then the feds went to Payne's Furniture to inquire about purchases made by Fats. Oh, I miss Payne's. I had an emerald green chaise long from there. It was gorgeous. No one cares about your furniture memories. Well, <laughs> no, I do. Okay. So what did they find?
1: Roughly $1,200 of furniture, but most of it was for his girlfriend, Joyce, except for a bachelor's chest in the office.
0: On June 7th, the grand jury returned an additional 48 indictments against Wimpy, Fats, and Perry. Wimpy and Fats were charged with receiving $55,000 and Perry of receiving $30,000. All three were indicted on conspiracy to receive stolen goods. Fats and Wimpy were arraigned on June 8th. Perry was returned to Boston and arraigned on June 20th. Well, don't forget about the $500 bill story. Oh man, I actually almost did. Okay, Perry said that on May 30th, Bucelli gave... Perry, a $500 bill to break for him. Perry approached Mario Mastro Totoro to make change for him. Mario went to the Union Parks Bar, my old neighborhood, and asked the owner, James Moses, to take the $500 bill off his hands. James asked his wife to go to the bank with the bill. Body of Moses deposited the money in her personal bank account, and James passed it off to Mario and Perry. Special Agent McNamara questioned the Moseses and the bank
1: manager The bank was still in possession of the bill, and it was checked against the Brinks loot and all other robberies. Another flop. The bill was clean. And surprise, surprise, the fingerprints that were taken from the cooler, the newspapers, and the money also came up blank.
0: While the investigation was continuing, the judge decided to split up the suspects. Wimpy was sent to Springfield, Fats to New Bedford, and Perry was at East Cambridge. All three men were convicted.
1: Wimpy was sentenced to one year in Deer Island, Fats was sentenced to two years, and Perry was later sentenced to two one-year concurrent sentences at the Middlesex County House of Corrections. But in May of 1957, Fats and Wimpy were cleared of being accessories after the fact. Later that year, Fats dropped a lawsuit against the Alert Trading Company. He was suing for unpaid commissions on coal sales he had made in New York City.
0: While well, Fats was serving his sentence and suing his former employer, he was indicted along with 14 others on narcotics charges. As we mentioned earlier, he was believed to be part of a $20 million drug smuggling ring based out of New York. One of his fellow co-conspirators was Moffy the Minor. Joseph Moffy will have his own episode later in the season. And it's going to be great. Oh, yeah.
1: So Bucelli was sentenced to five years on April 25th, 1958. This was just shortly after his release from Deer Island. He was allowed to remain out on bail pending his appeal, but on June 19th, Fats was found dead in his car on Tremont Street. He had been shot twice in the back of the head at close range. The authorities thought that it was someone sitting behind him in the car. His death was listed as the eighth fatality linked
0: to the Brinks heist. And that's where we're going to leave you today. If you want to find out more about Fats' murder, murder, you're going to have to t- continue listening to future episodes. Next week we will be our first episode about Dad, the central person of this podcast. Maybe you'll hear more about Fats in that one. Hey, Fats was killed on Richie's birthday. What is it with you guys and crimes on your birthdays? You've got me and you already asked me last week. Well, thank you all for listening. If you like our shows, please share them with your friends and on social media. Bye. Double Deal: True Stories of Criminals, Crimes and Lies.